Michael Ostlund here with Dr. Marion Brandon. She's a clinical psychologist and sex therapist. She's also the author of a few books, including Reclaiming Desires, Four Keys to Finding Your Lost Libido, and Unlocking the Sexy in Surrender. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. It's great to have you here. Thank you. So uh, I'll call you a primal sex therapist. <laughs> but uh, before I go down that path, maybe you could tell me a little bit about yourself, what got you into psychology, generally speaking, and sex therapy particularly. Well, you know, that is an interesting question because I always knew I was going to be a therapist. So even back when I was a child, that was in my mind. So that just sort of naturally flowed for me. I never intended to be a sex therapist, however. Um, that was not part of my plan. I was a and am a clinical psychologist. I opened up a private practice. I was sharing a lot of patients with a local gynecologist, and um, so we were working with many women who were dealing with a low sex drive, and ultimately we decided to write a book, and in the process of doing that, it was suggested to me that I become a sex therapist. Cool. And, I, and I said, there's no way. <laughs> like, that's not what I'm going to do. People are going to think I'm off, and I'm not, I'm not doing it. <laughs> but uh, as we continued our writing, and it just became evident that that was a necessary step. And so then I did do my training, which was fairly extensive uh, to specialize in sex therapy. But even after I was certified, I still didn't tell people for a while. I was really self-conscious about it. So it took me years to, to sort of come out as a sex therapist. <laughs> You're out of the closet now. I am now. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> um, besides your conventional training in, in human sexuality as a therapist, you've also done a wide variety of other types of training, too, kind of a creating a more integrative approach to sex therapy. Can you talk about some of your postgraduate training? Well, you know, you're right. It is necessary, I think, for all of us as therapists to, to have as broad a scope as possible in understanding uh, the issues that people bring to us. Um, I became interested in issues related to uh, evolution and biology when my practice became so focused on dealing with women with low libido because what I could see is that what I learned in training wasn't always helpful to these women. So what I learned, what therapists are taught, is that if someone has a low libido, that means you know they have an intim they have intimacy issues or there's some sort of struggle that they're having within themselves or there's something wrong with their relationship. And as a therapist, we tease out what those problems are, and if we resolve the problems, then their sex drive should return. Well, that makes logical sense, and it does sometimes happen that way. But what I found is that so often it didn't. So often the people I worked with, male and female, were quite healthy, well-rounded people. They were emotionally and physically strong. They had good relationships, and they still struggled with a low sex drive. So that's when, in my postgraduate training, I became more interested in evolution, evolutionary theory, anthropology, because it opened doors for me in understanding what some of these struggles could be about for people. And ultimately, I saw how our sexuality is so connected to our primal drives and who we are as mammals, as primates. It's not just about who we are um, in modern day, but also uh, our evolutionary biology and our evolutionary neurochemistry plays a big role in our sexuality. So that's the sort of the added piece to my training right. as I went on. So um, having read your book, Unlocking the Sexy and Surrender, it seems like there, there are two, not competing, but um, uh, not polar opposite, but two forces that are colliding. 
you mentioned one in terms of the primal instincts and the uh, neurobiology, which come from us as uh, mammals and primates, and you left out reptiles too. You know, <laughs> I did, didn't I? Get the whole brain in there, the triune brain, but you know, like our evolutionary past, kind of colliding with our present day culture here in the States, in America, North America, probably Europe as well, which has a quote, civilizing effect because modern or postmodern. And these two forces collide, and I'd like you to speak to what about our civilizing uh, culture that we have has a negative influence on the primal uh, impulses. This is such an important question because as much as uh, culturally we strive and encourage people to have great satisfying sex lives, the truth of the matter is the way we approach it as a culture, a modern culture, really works against our primal drive. So uh, a primal sexual drive comes from the primal brain, like you said, the reptilian brain. But the way we deal with it in the culture today is to think about sex and to um, use our brains to sort of get out of our bodies and into our thoughts and try to make sex better by thinking and planning and organizing and communicating. And it's not that there isn't a role for all of that, but what it does is it takes us out of that deeper part of our brain where primal sexual instincts thrive. So in an effort to encourage people to have more satisfying sex, we use our frontal lobes too much. <laughs> too much thinking. <laughs> exactly. Um, you also talk about in your book uh, not only too much thinking for the individual, but there's a cultural, social cultural aspect of it too, that as, as we moderns you know, go from the modern world into the postmodern world too, um, we, we all strive for equality politically and uh, perhaps equality in other aspects of our lives, but that search for equality also has a negative effect on these primal drives. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. So um, what I talk to folks about is that um, being equal doesn't mean being the same. And we've gotten confused about that, in my opinion, in our culture. So men and women are equal absolutely, and the feminist movement really brought us far along in understanding that and living that. And that's a very necessary and fabulous um, and true uh, concept. Um, but that doesn't mean that men and women are sexually the same. We're actually very similar males and females in many aspects of life. So we're very similar at work, for example. We're, we're very similar at parenting. But when it comes to the primal brain and sexuality, we're actually not so similar. And when we dilute those differences or ignore them, couples can struggle because those differences are important. They're evolutionarily sort of implanted in our brains. So our bodies respond to them whether or not our minds want us to. So sort of the, the bottom line here is that uh, good sex isn't politically correct. We want it to be, but it's not necessarily for many people, politically correct sex. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, describe politically correct sex, and then we'll jump into what's politically incorrect uh, sex, and, and, and once someone taps into their primal drive, what that looks like. Okay, so politically correct sex uh, <laughs> is sort of what we want to be true. We want to, um, we want to choose, we want to be in a relationship, in a, in a sexual relationship in a way that... Um, isn't uh, isn't wild or outside of what we would consider to be the norm or um, it's nice and neat and um, you fall in love and you have this 
if you, if you love well, you have this great sexual relationship as your relationship ages. And it's just sort of this package that our culture tries to present as if you, if you marry the right person, you're going to have good sex throughout the course of your relationship. And that's like politically correct. So everybody's equal in the bedroom. Everybody's equal outside of the bedroom. And, and sex flows from that. Now, the problem with that is that our primal brains, which is where great sex really lies for most people, um, those parts of our brains are not indoctrinated into what we call politically correct today. So when couples try to have politically correct, nice, neat sex, um, things get boring fairly quickly, and they are not satisfied. So that's a very common problem, and couples try to understand how that how things went wrong, and um, ultimately, um, what many people find is that it's not that there's something wrong with the relationship. It's that in this effort to stay politically correct, they've uh, contained their passion so much that there's not a lot of energy between them. So to break through that, what I would call maybe less politically correct <laughs> <laughs> would be to help a couple develop sexual chemistry. So sexual chemistry is like a polarity of opposites. And Mother Nature ingrained that in us um, to cultivate passion. She wanted she wanted us to be passionate because then we'd make babies. And if we make babies, th then we continue to, to keep our species on the planet. So the bottom line is that's what her interest was, to get people to collide, to get people to come together. And so the sexual chemistry um, is what, sh what we have learned, adapted uh, to create this kind of uh, politically incorrect sex, meaning men in general cultivating an assertive, confident, bold sexual style, and females cultivating an allowing, receptive, responsive sexual style. And we can see that this is uh, compelling, especially for women, when you look at the Fifty Shades of Grey phenomenon and the, and the power and the, and the popularity of erotica. It is that dynamic. So that's where things become politically incorrect, in that on one level, we sort of we, we, we are sort of ingrained in this concept that we're the same. Men and women are the same. But when it comes to uh, our sexual relationships, that's where things seem less politically correct in that we're identifying differences to cultivate a polarity. It, so it seems to me that uh, women then are having a two-front war. Yeah. Okay. Part, they're, they're dealing with a past in which they're forced due to cultural and social forces and religious forces to kind of be submissive to men. So they're fighting against that. So they want to be more uh, agenic in the world. Mm -hmm. But they're also fighting against, on the other side of that, uh, a natural impulse that emerges out of them, which necessitates, for procreation purposes, receptivity. Yes. How do they like? <laughs> how do you square that circle? It is such a huge conflict. It's. Mm. It, I think point one is to articulate the conflict because so often uh, women don't even understand the conflict within themselves. They don't understand why um, their sex their sex life isn't satisfying. They want to read erotica. They like Fifty Shades of Grey, but they don't want to feel dominated by their husband, for example. It's a very confusing thing for women. And it actually is not hard to understand when you take it back to your neurobiology because we're going back to the primal brain, the reptilian brain, as you brought up. That's where sexual drive lives originate. So if you think of 
you, capitalizing on the primal brain, the reptilian brain in the bedroom, but then outside of the bedroom, our more modern frontal lobes uh, run the show. <laughs> so it's really just a matter of understanding which part of your primal brain or your more modern evolved brain you're going to tap into and focus on at what point, at what part of your day or what part of your life. And I imagine that's a similar two-front war for men. M men being trained by our culture now to be on the more sensitive side, which then kind of violates their in innate primal brain, which says you, you need to be the alpha. Exactly. And so they're also fighting a two-front war. So if you're making distinctions between the bedroom and the boardroom <laughs> and other aspects of people's life, yeah. how would you suggest a man and or a woman you know, tap into and, and develop or, or connect with their innate uh, primal brain mm -hmm. well, in the bedroom? That's a great question, and people can learn to trigger each other. The first, so trigger each other's instincts, basically, because as a relationship ages, um, I would propose that it becomes more important for people to consciously trigger these instincts because um, the body isn't going to do that necessarily naturally. So a, a first step for some couples would be to maybe read some erotica together and identify the dynamics. So get a little more clear about what those dynamics are, and they're very nuanced. So it doesn't have to be, you know, he as an alpha male, uh, you know, throws her on the bed and tells her what to do. I mean, it can be that, but it can be much more subtle in terms of the way he comes on to her or um, invites her to sex or or. A, uh, touches her. It can be very nuanced, but still he kind of um, maintains some kind of management of the situation or some some sort of strength in that in that dynamic. So couples can learn that by reading erotica together. They can learn that um, by um, talking through what what makes what makes her feel willing to surrender, what makes him feel willing to take charge. So um, couples will have individual experiences of that, mm -hmm. but a woman might say, um, you know, when you look at me in this way, when you touch me in this way, it makes me want to let go. That's information that he needs to know. And she needs to know what makes him want to take her. So he might say, you know, when you talk to me in this way, when you look at me that way, that makes me feel empowered and it makes me want you. Um, so that's good information for her. So it's sort of like the man and the woman um, learning each other's uh, love maps or triggers mm -hmm. into how to cultivate that experience in their partner. Nice. So as a therapist, you, you work with you know, men and women and couples. Now, when you have a man who has a, a partner who's what you, he might call a ball buster, mm -hmm. so it's a very powerful woman, and or you have a female client who has a male who's meek or mm -hmm. overly sensitive, and so for, for the male, he ha does not have the capacity to, develop, to tap into that alpha male on his own, and or the female, she's you know, overly from his perspective, controlling and powerful and stuff, and not receptive and, and kind of the feminine stuff. Are there exercises that you could recommend for either side, not as a couple, but things that they can do on their own? So the man can develop that kind of alpha-ness, alpha, 
alpha maleness, mm -hmm. and a female can learn how to kind of relax into her feminine. Absolutely, and I think that's a really important part of this process is people learning how to um, feel those feelings and um, experience those feelings on their own before they, they come together with their partner. So for men, um, I encourage competitive sports um, or any activity that makes him feel manly, what makes him feel strong, what makes him feel powerful. I talk to men about how they sit, how they walk, um, because the way we hold our heads, the way our bodies uh, move can make us feel weak or powerful. Mm -hmm. So helping them become more tuned into all of that. Yoga can help a man do that because it helps a man become embodied and aware of his physical self. And that can be very empowering. So mm -hmm. those kinds of activities for a man can help him find that that energetic, that place that um, he can then bring to the bedroom. And for a female, yoga too can help her learn to soften and let go. Um, I encourage women to do um, like just stretches and uh, relaxing in the sunshine and journaling emotions, mm. things that Fun get time. her, yeah, things that help her feel like, help her let go and help her soften. Nice. Okay, so we have some exercises that both men and women can do on their own and then to do together. So we're talking about heterosexual couples. <laughs> How does this play out in homosexual couples? It's, so many homosexual couples will relate to these dynamics, that they appreciate that, um, that, that chemistry, that, that polarity. Um, not all, of course, but not all heterosexual couples will relate to this as well. Um, these are, you might consider them subtle power dynamics that, that many couples regardless of how they consider themselves from a gender perspective, will find exciting. Um, will find, um, many couples will find it, uh, it, it promotes passion. I mean, in a very extreme form, this is where um, couples find uh, excitement in bondage and submission and mm -hmm. dominance. Um, and that's a much more extreme kind of experience than the more subtle kinds of energies we're talking about. But it is really... Spectrum. Yes, it's mm -hmm. a spectrum. So... Most couples, when they first get together, there's a lot of passion, a lot of excitement. Mm -hmm. From an evolutionary biological perspective, why do you think, or what do we know, the reason that it kind of peters out over time, uh, just se seemingly naturally, yes. it doesn't have to peter out completely, right. <laughs> right. but it just it does seem to you know, lessen over time. You hear that from a lot of people. Yes. What, why do you think that is? So the evolutionists in general speculate that uh, Mother Nature um, set us up to have that lusty few years at the beginning of a relationship, basically so that we do fall in love, want to procreate, and make a baby. Now, the, the speculation is that that lust phase lasts long enough for uh, a woman to get pregnant, and then the, the, the connection stays strong long enough for a woman to have the baby and then raise the baby at least through toddlerhood. But then after that point, Mother Nature hasn't set our brains up to maintain that passion. She wasn't interested in long-term passion, she was interested in procreation. We're the ones that decided <laughs> that long-term passion was a great ideal. So that's where triggering each other um, in, into that instinctual primal sex is so is so necessary because Mother Nature didn't intend for us to stay together that long. She wasn't worried about that. She was just worried about continuation of the species? Right. 
Okay. Um, we talked, in the very beginning, you talked kind of a more, it's important to have an integrative or a larger picture approach to the work. All therapists should have it, whatever your specialty is. And uh, you've talked about kind of the, the paleo, the, the primal brain and how to fire it up. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about the culture and how it has a neg- it can have a negative effect on the, on the power dynamics of the couple. Mm-hmm. What other factors like nutrition, environment, other such things do you think about, look at when you're working with couples that might have an effect on sex drive? Oh, so many. So many different things. So I think about um, their physical health and are they exercising? Because what's good for the body is typically good for their sex lives. Um, Their hormonal milieu and if their hormones are are balanced, that needs to be looked at and addressed. If they have medical issues, um, if they're taking medication, those things can negatively impact their sex life. And of course, those issues that therapists traditionally think about can have a, a very profound effect on libido. Um, so anger in a relationship that's unaddressed um, or depression within a person that isn't being treated, anxiety. So these very basic emotional challenges can play out in libido um, as well as these these other issues that we've been discussing today. So libido is a very complicated, um, challenging um, uh, dynamic. You mentioned hormones, and you mentioned at the very beginning that uh, you got into the sex therapy because you work with a medical doctor. Yes. Um, so do you have do you have some of your clients go get uh, hormone panels as an example? Every every client I okay. encourage, um, and there are a few that I would even go so far as to say I'm not going to treat them unless they are seen by a physician because I think that it's such a, uh, an important issue for them. But I recommend it to everyone um, because people don't necessarily realize when their hormones are imbalanced, and that's such an important part of our health. Yeah, it seems to me like uh, we could almost have a flip where. A lot, of, a lot of the issues therapists deal with are physiological nature, and you actually have to deal with the medical aspects of it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of issues that doctors deal with are psychological so in nature, and you have to deal with the psychology stuff. Of it. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned drugs, and I imagine a lot of listeners and, and you know, just people don't realize that the side effects, and there's really no side effects, they're just effects of drugs, mm. can have negative consequences mm-hmm. to one's sex drive and sexual energy. Can you speak a little bit to that? Absolutely. So uh, SSRIs, those are uh, a form of a version of antidepressants, um, are commonly affect people's libido. They can affect people's orgasms. They can affect erections. They actually can have a lot of different, they can affect a woman's lubrication. They have a lot of different potential impacts on sexuality, but libido, absolutely, for sure. But other issues that can, uh, other medicines that can affect libido are very commonly used um, over-the-counter and prescription, um, and they can be medications to treat things like heart problems or diabetes. Um, So these are commonly used medicines, and what I would encourage listeners to do is ask their physicians about the medicines they're taking and how it could impact their sex drive. Often physicians are uh, reluctant to bring this up because they don't they don't necessarily feel like their patient wants to talk about it or would be comfortable. So oftentimes physicians wait for the patient to bring it up and then the patient feels self-conscious about doing it and it's not discussed. But I would really encourage your listeners to bring this up with their doctors. And I have to imagine you mentioned medical conditions that a lot of medical conditions 
you know, blood pressure issues, heart disease, et cetera, et cetera, right. will have a negative con- effect on one's sex drive and sex life. Exactly. And, it's, and it can be so tricky because uh, the, the illness can have a negative impact, but then the medication can have a negative impact. Um, so it, it is a very individualistic uh, problem that a person needs to work out with their doctor. And the good news here is that if a person has to be on a medication, oftentimes they have a choice of medicines, and one medicine will not impact their sex drive the same way another one would, which is, again, why it's so important to have that conversation with their physician. So we uh, live in America, a very multicultural society. Yeah. Uh, where does culture play? And we talk broadly about culture and the kind of the, 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 the culture uh, effects on some of these things, but thinking in terms of other uh, subcultures. Yes. Um, do you do you work with any people who come from very particular subcultures and see the negative or positive effects on approaching sexual and sexual dysfunction and sexual health? Complicated question, and I would say every culture um, can be very nuanced in how they understand sexuality, what they consider to be appropriate expression of sexuality, and even if uh, they expect people to have a libido. So, for example, there are some cultures that don't even expect females to necessarily want sex. So, l- low libido doesn't really exist for them. Whereas okay. in Western cultures, uh, women are are very much supported in in their sexuality and expected to have a sex a sex drive. So, it does vary uh, very much between culture how these issues are understood. So, a lot of factors at play. Mm. Now, you've written a couple books. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little about each of the books and where we can find them? Sure. So the first book that I alluded to, I wrote with a gynecologist, um, called Reclaiming Desire, Four Keys for Finding Your Lost Libido. Um, So that you can find on Amazon.com, and that's... um, uh, that looks at libido from a perspective of emotional and intellectual and relationship and spiritual issues and explores uh, feminine libido from those perspectives. My next book, uh, Monogamy, the Untold Story, um, I wrote after the Reclaiming Desire because I was learning about, at that time, evolutionary theory and how that plays in to libido and sexuality. Now, the most recent book that I wrote uh, is an e-book, and it's called Unlocking the Sexy in Surrender, uh, Using the Neuroscience of Power to Recharge Your Sex Life. Um, that book really encapsulates everything that, that I have been learning and writing about up until this moment. And if, uh, if a listener wants to explore these concepts more, I would actually steer them towards the ebook, um, which they can find on Amazon.com. Cool. And you also a practicing therapist? I am. Annapolis, Maryland. Yes. Uh, where can people find more about your work? Um, my website is drbrandon.net, so www.drbrandon.net. It's uh, Dr. Brandon. Yes, thank you. Sure, awesome. Well, thank you for coming. It's a great. Co- it's a, been a very informative conversation. Uh, my pleasure. I appreciate your time, and uh, we'll have you on again because there's still a lot more to explore uh, in terms of the whole paleo primal movement yes. and and your thinking and connecting all the dots and stuff. So I consider this uh, first step. Oh well, thank you for the invitation. It's been a pleasure to talk with you today. Cool.